This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we talk with the CEO of air-to-ground network provider, Smart Sky Networks. In the news, an update on Boeing 737 MAX 9 inspections, unleaded avgas testing problems, and an Air Force officer has been crowned as Miss America. I never thought I'd be saying something like that, but hey, why not? We also have many additions from listeners to the growing list of favorite aviation movies. All that and more, it's coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 784 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is first David Vanderhoof, our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Hello, everybody. Happy birthday, F-16. 50 years old. It's hard to believe now that aircraft that from my youth are now 50 years old. But looking forward to a good conversation this evening. Terrific. Also with us is Rob Mark. He's contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He's a BizJet pilot, a CFI, former air traffic controller, and he's the publisher of the Jetwine blog. Hey, good evening from uh, beautiful downtown Chicago where it's uh, dark uh, and we're still waiting for spring, but I guess that's a few weeks away yet. Yeah, you've got a, you've got a ways to go. We all do. Uh, well, at least those of us on... This, uh, this hemisphere. Also with us is our main man, Micah. Hey, everyone. Nice to be here. And I'm really looking forward to a show where we don't get wired. <laughs> yeah. All right. That will become evident in just a second because our guest is David Helfgott. He's chief executive officer of Smart Sky Networks. They're an air-to-ground network provider. Now, this network takes advantage of patented spectrum reuse, advanced beam-forming technologies, and 60 megahertz of spectrum for enhanced connectivity. And Smart Sky Networks offers a real-time, low-latency, bidirectional data link. Of course, as CEO, Dave is responsible for the company's strategic direction and its product development, operational programs that serve business aviation, general aviation, as well as commercial aviation markets. So, Dave, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Thanks, guys. Good to be here. So we're going to have a, an interesting conversation with Dave coming up, talking about in-flight connectivity in different forms and in types and learn more about what his company is doing. But we're going to start off, as usual, with some of the aviation news from the past week. Are you guys ready? We are ready. Mainly ready. First item comes from the Seattle Times. This is Boeing still without a timeline to return to the skies. Now, of course, this is talking about the Boeing 737-9 MAX fleet that experienced that loss of a mid-cabin door plug. And uh, is this uh, headline says, Rob, but no timeline. I mean, some things have, have happened, but we still don't know when they'll be returning to the skies. 
I think one of the issues that has uh, slowed them down a little bit is probably the FAA. Uh, and with a new administrator only having been in the job, I don't know, what, six weeks or something, uh, they're probably ready to say, slow down, let's make sure we actually have the problem solved uh, and that there aren't some other problems uh, waiting to uh, potentially bite us, as uh, as that other link that Micah put in uh, the, the notes uh, indicates, because the inspections on these door plugs uh, has now been extended to the 737-900ERs, uh, uh, and uh, there are four or 500 of those out there. And now they haven't found any problems with them yet, but because they share a similar door plug design to the max, uh, they're saying, let's check those babies out. You know, I got a little confused on this because uh, there's a a page on the FAA site in their newsroom, updates on grounding of Boeing 737 MAX 9 aircraft, which seems to have periodic postings added to it with, with updates. And this morning, there was one in there, the most recent one, dated January 21st, that uh, said, as an added layer of safety, the FAA is recommending that, this is as you said, Rob, that operators of Boeing 737-900ER aircraft visually inspect mid-exit door plugs to ensure that the door is properly secured. It says the Boeing 737-900ER is not part of the newer MAX fleet, but has the same door plug design. Now, that's what it said this morning, but it's gone now. Micah said the same thing, and uh, what it was turned into was a, uh, a safety of uh, flight uh, for, uh, let's see what they call it, a SAFO. I should know. Safety alerts for operators. There you go. Uh, good, good, good on you. I, I should remember that, but I didn't. Um, but again, it's uh, primarily aimed at a certain specific group of operators, and um, I think they didn't want it to get lost in the in the news section from uh, the FAA site. But um, again, it's uh, nothing has happened yet with the 900s. But, you know, I, I always hate to use this phrase whenever I'm talking about airplanes in, in an abundance of caution. Uh, whenever you say words like that around people that ride in the back, they, they tend to uh, get really upset. But it is what it is. I mean, you know, this this didn't start just this week, this last week. I mean, this goes back to the uh, the days when the Max Max uh, Sevens were, you know, that crashed in uh, Indonesia and uh, and Ethiopia. And again, it's it's a bad Boeing decision, I think, that has led to all of this. But that's probably way more than we have time to talk about tonight. In regards to the updates on the webpage, you know, it seems mysterious that there would be an entry for uh, the 21st of, of January that was there and then removed. And uh, you, you want to start thinking conspiracies. But then, you know, I thought about it a little bit. And the title of this page is Updates on Grounding of Boeing 737-9 MAX Aircraft. And the 900ER is not the 737-9 MAX. So it would make sense that they might, they, somebody might have put it up on that page and somebody else said, well, not that page. But 
It was kind of curious to among uh, aviation reporters that when this first happened and they grounded the uh, the Max Nines, they uh, everybody was wondering why aren't they doing anything with the 900 ERs? It's the same few, same plug, same fuselage, and there was a lot of discussion. So the fact that they're doing this, I think, is smart. But there was actually a very funny thing that I found about this is you know I listened to a lot of NPR and there was a lot of reporting about the inspections of the 737-900 ER. And the best part of that was trying to listen to all the announcers explain 737-900ER and try to say it over and over. They were going slow. They were stumbling over it. It was just hysterical. And this was KUOW in Seattle, but I think it was also on the national news. They just had a hard time trying to get that out because they were being detailed about a particular aircraft for a change. Well, the, the, of course, the, the, the short answer to the uh, question is that Boeing, I'm sorry, the FAA is taking its own sweet time and uh, it's not in any hurry to get the, uh, the these uh, 737s back in the air. Yeah, and of course they want to get it right for lots of obvious reasons. But what we see is that uh, reportedly the, the first 40 MAX 9 inspections, preliminary inspections, have uh, taken place and the FAA is now reviewing the results. Now, that's just a portion of the fleet. So I'm surmising that the FAA wants to look at, you know, what, what are we seeing? What are the results from this basically sample size that directs how we're going to continue with, uh, with, with the inspections on the others or the full inspection to include those 40? So the, the planes remain grounded, and they will until they have an inspection and maintenance process that's approved by the FAA that can be applied to all the grounded planes. So again, it, the flavor I get of this is that these these 40 planes that have been inspected provide the data that lets the FAA then uh, determine what is the actual inspection process that they want to see for, for all of these aircraft. And, you know, all, it's step by step, and all these all these take time. Yeah, and the MAX-ER... Um the Max 9 ER is only flown by United and Alaska in the United States, so uh, it's not a tremendous number. When you get down to the 900 ER, on the other hand, uh, as Ma- as Rob said, there are uh, close to 400 of those, and they're uh, in uh, United, United, Delta, and Alaska fly them. That's that's a lot of aircraft to have out of service. Yeah. So this is obviously disruptive. Not only to the well, the airlines, but to the passengers. There've been a number of uh, flight delays and cancellations as a result of this. And uh, you know, I'm I'm curious. Maybe maybe Dave, maybe you've got some some comments. But the impacts of of grounding aircraft like this, I assume, kind of percolate out beyond just the airline, and the airlines, and the traveling public to the. You know the suppliers of services and things uh, and so forth. Does that apply to things like in-flight connectivity? I mean, are the are the contracts written such that the airlines or those who are purchasing the service pay whether their planes are grounded or not? Uh, typically, that's correct. Yes, although commercial aviation and business aviation are very different, um, we can get into those differences later, I suppose. But yeah, whether they uh, fly or not, they're paying usually a monthly service fee. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought. Okay, interesting. Rob, the uh, NTSB chair has uh, 
some comments or has spoken to uh, a phone call that she said that she got from Boeing? It was very short and sweet. Um, Jennifer Hamady said that she received a call from uh, Mr. Calhoun at Boeing, and, and he said that they were very interested, uh, Boeing, that is, about fixing any errors that maybe uh, have uh, popped up in the uh, in their aircraft. And, of course, I think everybody that saw that said, okay, uh, that's kind of nice. Uh, we're kind of expecting that. But, uh, again, the problem with all of these Boeings lately is that they still have the same uh, board of directors in place at Boeing today that they did in uh, 20, uh, 2018 when the uh, first aircraft went down. So if they're talking about changing anything, it is hard when the leaders are still the same. Well, the leaders probably noticed the board of directors was looking at the uh, the, the spreadsheets and said, oh, look, we're, we're not making as much money as we thought. We, we might want to do something about this. Could be. All right. I wonder if that phone call didn't cover more ground than just that one statement. And that's only the, you know, the bit of it that uh, uh, Hamandi wanted to uh, relate to the public. I, I bet it yeah, did. Yeah. All right. Uh, we have an item from Avweb. This is uh, switching gears uh, to a certain extent. Phillips 66 suspends unleaded Avgas testing. And there is something called the Piston Engine Aviation Fuels Initiative. And Phillips 66 has been working with uh, Afton Chemicals to develop an unleaded Avgas alternative. And, Rob, we see that that, I guess, is not going too well. Well, this is only the uh, Phillips 66 testing that has been sidelined for the moment. And um, the initial news release did not explain why uh, the folks at Avweb found a source that did not want to be named that said it was because the uh, aircraft uh, engines under test were building up uh, deposits of manganese on the valves. And uh, so somehow, now again, like the NTSB story, I'm sure there is more to it than what we've been able to find out. But the fact that uh, a uh, uh, you know one organization that was involved in the unleaded fuel initiative, uh, which of course the uh, EPA is going to be hot on everybody's tail about here pretty soon, uh, because there was that finding last year that uh, leaded fuel, uh, of course, could be uh, a polluter and a carcinogen, and all the things that we knew. I don't know, when did they ban lead in automobile fuel? Back in the 70s, I think, or 79, something? 80, right around there. Okay, so that's, uh, well, a bunch of years, years ago. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we know that this is coming. And so this initiative to, to find a lead-free solution uh, fuel is, is important because we do have uh, general aviation manufacturers uh, that that produce a, a fair amount of piston airplanes, and um, so we're going to have to deal with that. But again, the uh, the other uh, solution, I mean, like the GAMI solution that we've talked about before, that is still going, and they have not uh, reported any uh, any difficulties. 
with the testing. So again, perhaps it is something that's unique to the uh, uh, the Philips product that uh, has has caused this. It'd be nice to know the the technical differences. Uh, Gammy, which of course the General Aviation Modifications Inc. is the name of the company. They have STC approval for its uh, its fuel for many, if not most, gasoline engines uh, used by aircraft. But there's there are two besides. The uh, Phillips. Swift, I think, is the other. Swift, that's right. Swift and uh, uh, Lyondell, Bassell, and VP Racing Fuels together are also uh, going through the process. So they have their own, uh, their own solutions. There's a line in the article that I think is pretty important and also I find sort of humorous. But the, uh, the, the line is that the, uh, when they were testing it, the, the Phillips Afton fuel was powering a Lycoming engine in a test cell for 150 hour endurance test. And the engine failed to, due to a buildup of manganese deposits that fouled the spark plugs and or caused pre-ignition. Now that could definitely be a problem, especially if you're flying. But, but the, this is the part that I find quite humorous. Phillips did not confirm that as the cause of the evaluation pause. Oh, okay. I wonder what else it might have been. Yeah, it seems likely. They also say they, Phillips 66, says they're, they're committed to this, to the vision of developing unleaded aviation fuel. And so uh, how long this pause is, uh, you know, how long it takes them to uh, assess the situation and come up with some some uh, different approaches or whatever, you know, remains to be seen. Or me- maybe the, the technology they're trying to employ just will not be successful at all. All right. One more story. This is This is a really different kind of a story. I never in a million years imagined that we'd be talking about a story like this. This is from CNN. U.S. Air Force officer crowned as 2024 Miss America. Now, normally we don't really follow the Miss America contest, but uh, this is uh, this is kind of uh, unique, Micah. Yeah, and trust me, I don't follow Miss America, but a uh, a friend of mine does. She was involved in pageants with her sister and her, and her daughters, and she kind of follows it. So when I see a news story about Miss America, I'll usually forward it to her. And I saw this one, and I said, wait, this is an airplane geek story. And Madison Marsh, who's a second lieutenant in the in the U.S. Air Force, uh, who also happens to have a master's. Uh, she's also a master's student at the uh, Harvard Kennedy School of Public Policy Programming is a 2024 Miss America. She's an Air Force Air Force officer, an academy graduate, a pilot, and now Miss America. Who would have thunk it? I know. And she's the first uh, active duty Air Force officer to ever ever win that contest. And she worked aviation into the into the uh, the competition, into the different rounds. Uh, it, it got down to Eleven, or when it got down to eleven semi-finalists, um, there were uh, four rounds of of competition. There's a a fitness showcase, which I think is just a runway walk, but then there's uh, the second is the hot topics discussion round, and her topic was drugs in America, and she related her uh, mother's battle with pancreatic cancer and worked that into a drugs in America theme. I think we might know what that was about. Uh, there was also a talent performance. In there, she presented a spoken word piece about receiving a pilot's license at age 16, which I thought was kind of interesting. And, and the fourth round there was the, an evening gown presentation. But after that, she got down 
to be one of the uh, five finalists. And um, they were asked, or she was asked anyway about, well, I guess all of them were asked about their goals as Miss America. And what she did is she highlighted her military credentials uh, relating that to her commitment to learning and, and leading with passion. So uh, she was successful. Congratulations. Yeah, and also let, let me just say, because I get told this all the time uh, by my friend, uh, you know, Miss America at one time was just, you know, a uh, a beauty competition sort of, it was called the beauty pageant. It was done in Atlantic City as a publicity thing. Uh, the Contest has changed, and uh, well, yeah, I think there's still an evening gown competition and the runway walk in a rhinestone embellished athletic leisure wear. Uh, it's not all based on that any longer, and uh, uh, the women that participate in Miss America have to be very, very talented in many other ways. And her story is is kind of interesting. It's a it's a story of that we hear a lot about uh, a youngster who, you know, gets exposed to aviation, or in her case, uh, space, and something that carries them through into their, uh, into their career and their profession. So she, uh, she attended space camp at age 13, and, and there she learned about the uh, United States Air Force Academy. So um, she knew that was something she wanted to do. She started flying lessons at uh, age 15, Earned her pilot's license, and then, you know, as you mentioned, attended the Air Force Academy. Became uh, Miss Colorado uh, before the uh, this contest, the Miss America contest, and um, um, that's you know fantastic. Uh, but again, it's it's another example of you know get 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 someone young interested in in aviation, and once that bug bites, boy, it'll carry you through. We should get her as a guest. That would be interesting. I don't know what she does in the Air Force. I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't find out. I don't specifically. think it mentioned anything. At least I didn't see it. Um, she. She's but, an F sixteen pilot. Is she? All right. I didn't see that. Yeah, I saw it someplace else. And uh, again, I think she would make a very inspiring guest for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, that'd be fun. And we could tell her that in order to to, uh, to be a part of the show, there is no swimsuit competition. <laughs> Unless, of course, there's going to be for us. Now, that, of course. No, no, no. Don't even go there. We're not going to. I'm getting sick to my stomach just thinking about it. Let's let it go. Yeah, you're probably (laughs) right. Again, we're speaking with Dave Helfgott. He's the CEO of Smart Sky Networks. Dave, again, thanks for coming on the show. Let's talk a little bit about in-flight connectivity. We, we hear different options, um, different approaches, ground-based, satellite-based. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about sort of the overall landscape of this market? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thank you. Uh, great to be here, by the way, guys. Um, so there are really two ways to get a signal to an aircraft. It's either from the ground or from overhead, right? So it's either line of sight where you can see the tower or it's beyond line of sight, which is usually, I mean, satellite. Um, there are a few other ideas in there. They're floating around like high altitude platforms, but effectively those are the two kinds. And so the satellite operators do a lot of different things, including uh, provide bandwidth to aircraft. They use those satellites for maritime applications, for fixed sites like office buildings or military bases, for people's homes, for their internet, uh, for mobility on the ground and for airplanes. And so when you are using any kind of satellite connectivity, you're sharing that 
bandwidth, if you will, or spectrum with other users in that footprint. And they usually have several hundred mile wide circles of coverage that you fly through. That's uh, sort of the first way that people are familiar with. Uh, the second way is if it's from the ground. So a line of sight kind of uh, network. Uh, it works in many ways similar to a, a 4G or 5G terrestrial wireless network like you use with your cell phone. Obviously, very modified to be able to work in the environment of uh, aviation, which is the hardest of all use cases. Everything I just described to you is easy compared to aviation. Um, and there are advantages and disadvantages to both types of technologies. They often work cooperatively. Uh, many aircraft use both. In fact, the trend is to use both air-to-ground and satellite for most of larger aircraft anyway. So air-to-ground obviously is uh, applicable for when you're flying over or, or near ground. Uh, and, and so uh, flying across the ocean, that, that's not going to be advantageous. Um, that's right. That's right. And, and so if it's an international flight, you know, across the Atlantic or the Pacific or something, then an airline might think about uh, satellite-based. Um, but it's interesting that you mentioned that you know, the trend or that some people are using both. Is, is that because, well, why is that? Why, why would you use both? Yeah, so um, some of it's economic, some of it is the size of the aircraft and what you can fit on it for the electronics to do the communications, um, and some of it is sort of the trade-offs. Uh, each does something better than the other. So if you have a large enough aircraft, like a commercial airframe or a very large business airframe, like a, like a Gulfstream, you have a lot of room and a lot of margin for power and heat and drag and size. And so you can put more antenna on the aircraft for satellite, and satellite antennas tend to be larger and heavier and more expensive. But what they do very well is they get a lot of bandwidth to that aircraft. And so if you're streaming movies, uh, satellite is a good idea. Um, the more users you have on the aircraft sharing that bandwidth, of course, the less speed or the less uh, um, useful that con connection is for them aggregately. But that's, that's how satellite works well. The downside of satellite is uh, latency. It's far away. And so the round trip for the signal takes longer. Air to ground uh, it has sort of the opposite benefits. It's very close, so the latency is very low, and it um, doesn't typically bring as much bandwidth to the aircraft, but it's very good at getting bandwidth off the aircraft. And so if you have applications, if you're flying uh, you know, from New York to L.A. and everybody on board is streaming movies, satellite's a good bet, You know what they call wideband or broadband satellite. Um, if you are doing Zoom calls or uh, accessing the cloud for computing or playing video games that require real-time uh, interactivity. Uh, you can't have stuttering or, or lag or jitter or delays. Or if you have encrypted networks, either corporate or government networks that require encryption, which drops when there's too much delay, then you really do need something that's a little faster and higher bandwidth off the aircraft. And so we tend to see, uh, this is a generalization, you tend to see satellite, broadband satellite being very well used in commercial aviation especially over the oceans when that's your only choice. Uh, and air-to-ground better suited for most business application. Uh, so more on business aviation, if you will, uh, for the back of the cabin. Uh, there, there are other uses for bandwidth on an aircraft besides the back of the cabin. We can talk about that later. Let's uh, clarify something because this can be really confusing. E even at home, it's confusing. It only gets more confusing when you're flying. But just so that our, our audience is aware, we once had a guest on that talked about aircraft Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about the Wi-Fi, the router and the signal that gets from the aircraft to your phone. What we're talking about now is getting the signal, the internet, from the ground or from the sky, but that internet signal to the aircraft for then the aircraft to distribute. 
That's exactly right. So imagine your home or your home office and you have a cable connection and then in your office you have a router and then that router broadcasts a Wi-Fi signal to the rest of the house. In this situation, the signal from the satellite or from the air-to-ground tower, that's your connection to the network. And then once it gets into the aircraft, it's distributed by the Wi-Fi router just like it would be in your home. So it's it's basically wireless uh, broadband connectivity. Now, in terms of the antenna, I mean, I think we've seen uh, photographs of the little blister on the top of the fuselage. Uh, I, I've always assumed that was for satellite communications. What's the antenna arrangement like for ground-based communication? So a lot of what drives the antenna size is the, the frequencies that you're operating. And the higher the frequency, the larger the antenna. And satellites operate in very high frequency, and that allows them to provide a lot of bandwidth. But that's why you see those big bumps on the top of larger commercial aircraft. Underneath that air, that uh, ray dome is a flat or flattish antenna that's moving like moving around a bit, trying to lock in on the satellite as it's flying by. On the ground, uh, under for a ground network, much smaller antennas. They're basically blade antennas, uh, and they uh, because you're you're operating in a different frequency closer to the source, and so you have the efficiencies much lower weight. Uh, and much lower drag and obviously a much smaller antenna and antenna footprint. That's what allows you to put that on smaller and smaller aircraft like hmm. business and general aviation aircraft. And what kind of equipment is uh, required on the ground? So uh, if you're talking about an air-to-ground network, you, yeah. we, you would need to build a nationwide or whatever geography you're covering, um, basically wireless network, sort of like uh, T-Mobile or AT&T and string it all together with fiber and operate it like a, a terrestrial wireless network, except the antennas are all pointing up at the airplanes instead of down at people's cell phones. So that's what you need to build across, in this case, across the United States to get full coverage. So did you, did, did your company build that ground network or is that somebody else's kitty? No, we built it. Uh, now everybody leases tower space on the large tower leasing companies, but it's our stuff, our network uh, connected together through fiber into our data centers and into our into our network operations center. So we built a over 300 site uh, US-based air-to-ground network. Now, do you guys know who we have to thank for having all this spread spectrum and, and, <laughs> and, and all these things and where it came from? Do you guys know the answer to that question? It's really pretty fascinating. You're not going to say Elon Musk, right? No. Okay. Is, are, you, are you talking about frequency hopping? Yep. And Hedy Lamar? The actress Hedy Lamar, ah, she came story. up with that. Yeah, it's a one amazing. Okay, story. come on, you got to tell us. She developed this idea. She had this concept that was during World War II, and mm -hmm. it ended up being taken and growing into what is now the entire cellular network and and and, and what you do in your uh, in the internet system that you're providing from ground to air and even satellite to air uh, internet stuff. And people Very just thought cool. of her as this beautiful actress, which she was, but she was brilliant. I had no idea. Yeah, interesting, huh? Yeah. So how long did it take to build out the, you know, the ground network? That sounds like a rather involved and expensive process. It takes uh, multiple years. And, and a lot of the work initially is, for us in, in any case, was a lot of uh, technical development. So a lot of patent research and development to figure out how to use a certain kind of spectrum in the aviation use case, which, as I mentioned, is the hardest place to do anything, as you guys well know. Um, and then, build, then finding the locations, building the sort of geometry of, of the network so it, it works within that 
frequency band and then building it out takes multiple years. Uh, we just went commercial about a year ago. Hmm. And so we're just rolling out now commercially. Yeah, you must you have to play for the long game, right? I mean, while you're building out that network, you're not generating revenue, I imagine. From That's right. That's right. It's a it, it, to get a little finance wonky. It's called a fixed asset leasing model where you have to build the whole stadium before you can start selling tickets to it. Right. Right. And so we, we've been selling tickets now for the last uh, year or so. So if I'm an airline and uh, I want to put Internet on my aircraft and I'm looking for proposals, what are you going to tell me? Why should we be doing this ground based stuff as opposed to satellite? So actually, if you're an airline and you're passengers are largely just downloading web pages or, or downloading uh, video, then you're going to want satellite, wide, what's called wideband or broadband satellite. But uh, I mentioned earlier, there's other parts of the aircraft that are important. Uh, there's really three domains that you guys are aware. There's the back of the aircraft, passengers. There's the operational domain, which is the middle, and then there's the cockpit. Um, the real-time data exchange part for commercial aviation really uh, thrives with air-to-ground because we have higher bandwidth off the aircraft with very low latency. So if you're doing uh, in-flight telematics or aero IoT, uh, you want to get real-time information about the operations of the aircraft or crew communications, or you want to provide supplemental information to the, the electronic flight bag to the guys in the cockpit, you can do that stuff on an air-to-ground network very effectively and efficiently while you're using satellite to, to you know, Last Netflix to 300 people. So they work complementary that way in commercial aviation. In business aviation, there aren't a lot of aircraft you can fit those giant antennas on. And so air to ground, you can on some of the very big aircraft and getting towards sort of super midsize. But below that, it's a real trade off as to where you fit the antenna and what it does to drag and, and the heat and power it requires. And so air to ground becomes the best solution for most of the business aviation space as well. And go ahead, Rob. I was going to say that uh, I can remember you, you were relating this to uh, cellular connections earlier on. And I've always wondered, uh, because if, if we were always told that you can't use a cell phone in an airplane, because, of course, you're going to completely screw up the ground-based networks. Uh, yeah. And and I'm thinking of a, of a Gulfstream, and, you know, we would cruise it you know, 47,000 feet or something like that. And, and line of sight at 47,000 feet is quite a long distance. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm just curious about how the system interprets which ground system to work with when the aircraft is 250 miles away from the ground station. Yeah. How often are we changing towers? I think. Yeah. So it's actually really cool. Um, so every tower has multiple sectors, like a wedge, and every sector has multiple beams. And in our particular network, there's other people who do this as well, but in our particular network, um, we have electronic beam forming. And so an aircraft is flying and its antenna, this is happening in milliseconds, sends out a pull to the six closest towers and says, who's got the best signal? And tower number two says, I've got the best signal. And they lock and they stay locked together for about 15 seconds and it says it's constantly pulling around itself saying who has the best signal we use something called signal to noise ratio or sinar to determine the best connection this is happening at 500 miles an hour at 30,000 feet uh every couple of milliseconds and that's how you make sure that you have really great connections the way that we've designed our the reason why it took us so long is we had to come up with these innovations and the reason we designed a single beam per aircraft is that nobody shares the same link in some satellite cases, you're all flying through the same footprint and you're all sharing the same amount of bandwidth. 
we're sort of doing more of a laser focus, but it's switching all the time, which is similar to what you get with your, your uh, 5G cell phone, just faster and higher. So single beam per aircraft. Yeah, I would. Yeah, yeah I didn't. I didn't think of that. So why did you smile when I said you weren't supposed to use your cell phone in an <laughs> yeah, airplane? I mean, I, it's an old story, I'm sure. I'm not really sure I've ever heard a good answer as to why you should never use your cell phone on on airplane. I, I'm, you know, there's a lot of very funny comedy sketches about that. So I was yeah, smiling, yeah. thinking about those. So you're more like, uh, rather, uh, like a a, wi- a fiber connection for internet to your home, which is individually to you, totally uh, synchronous, as opposed to a cable connection where you're sharing, which is what satellite would be, where you're sharing that bandwidth with everybody else around you. That's a really good analogy. Yeah, it is. A, it's it's much more like that. It's more of a one to one. In fact, we can have what's called a symmetrical data link, meaning the bandwidth to the aircraft can be the same as the bandwidth off the aircraft. Normally, you see like ninety percent of the bandwidth going to a commercial airport, and like ten percent of the bandwidth coming off for the reasons we described earlier. Um, it really depends on how you're using it. If you're doing video teleconferencing on your flight from New York to Chicago, um, you're using a very symmetrical data link. You're, you're communicating and and you're receiving signal. Uh, so we have that flexibility and we designed it that way because we're really focused initially on business aviation and then on these other specialized parts of commercial aviation to provide that very high fidelity uh, data link all the way across. What kind of interest are you finding in the uh, business aviation segment? A lot of interest. We Our sort of coming out party was really this past NBAA show in October in Vegas. I think we had 60 sales meetings in three days. Wow. It was crazy. I, I couldn't talk for a week afterwards, and uh, we're still working through that list uh, as we speak. It, it, there's a lot of interest. What's, what we do better than anyone is we can go down market because of the size of our system and the, the quality of the service we can provide w- with that size. We can go down now below like the mid-size aircraft to small jets and turboprops and provide multi-megabit data networks. So you can actually stream to a King Air with our system. Which is, uh, you just can't do that with anybody else. So we need to let Max Trescott know so he can get it on his vision jet, right? Yeah, give us a call. Well, what are the, yeah, talking about general aviation is compared to business aviation. Um, I, I could, uh, well, I'm wondering about the costs and, you know, are they coming down? Are they at a level that are, uh, that are often affordable for a typical general aviation pilot or aircraft? Yeah, historically, the cost has been very high, right? And a lot of it is because satellite was very expensive. And you had um, broadband or wideband satellite operators like Intelsat or Viasat uh, or Inmarsat. And, and then you had narrowband providers like um, Iridium or Inmarsat. And the cost, the way you measure efficiency in that space is cost per bit per hertz. The cost per bit per hertz was very high, and the cost of getting equipment on the aircraft was also quite high. And so it was limited mostly to commercial and larger business aviation for the longest time. Then competition kicked in and the, and technology innovation kicked in and you started to see it moving down market to sort of uh, super mid-sized aircraft and maybe even towards mid-sized. But the price and the size of the aircraft really became a limiting factor. It doesn't matter if it's less expensive, still expensive, uh, but less expensive. If you can't fit it on the aircraft or get an STC to get it installed in the aircraft because the gauge of the fuselage is so small, you can't put it on there. And so you can't put it on the tail of most aircraft other than the big ones, like, you know, Gulf Streams again. So there was this limit, this physical and regulatory limit, as well as a cost barrier, I'd say. And that changed 
uh, with more innovations. We're one of those companies that are trying to push it all the way down market and not just from commercial aviation through business aviation, but yes, you mentioned general aviation, piston aircraft and helicopters are, there's like a lot of aircraft that have minimal connectivity. And I've heard people say, well, why would I want to stream Netflix if I'm flying my Cessna? Well, maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't, but you might want to get weather updates on your EFB, or you might want to uh, have maintenance data taken off your aircraft in real time back to you know, flight operations. So just being connected is a benefit and being connected real time with low latency really makes those things possible. It's not all entertainment. No, that's the tip of the spear that's driving a lot of the adoption, but there's, I th- between all of us, I think in about five years, it's going to be the operational efficiencies that these networks allow aircraft, you know, but more efficient routes, uh, fuel efficiency, safety and flight augmentation, those kinds of things. So I was wondering if uh, if you guys have interacted with the uh, with the NetJets folks because they have a a, a fairly significant fleet size these days, and I would think that as you were mentioning the ability to to uh, upload and download data, uh, operational data in real time would be incredible. I mean, is it affordable to them? It is, especially because it's become now a have-to-have for charter operators, for people flying other people around. They will choose other aircraft if you don't have connectivity while they're leasing or using their fractional ownership. Um, so it's become kind of table stakes, especially for the big guys like NetJets and FlexJet. The business aviation market's interesting. There's 25,000-ish aircraft ranging from Boeing business jets down to, you know, Pilatus and King Air. Um and the adoption at the larger end, of course, happened first, but there's much fewer of those aircraft. Where the real interesting growth is for ourselves and others who can make it to that part is the small jet and turboprop market, where the prices have come down, the quality of service and the efficacy of service has gone up. And so you're, we're seeing so much interest in that part of the market, which has been kind of ignored or barely served for years. Uh, so price is a very important factor, but I think people have an inherent need now to be connected. Uh, I used to love getting on flights and knowing I, that nobody would email me for five hours. I'm sorry, guys, those days are gone. Yes. <laughs> you know, uh, based on um, the, the question in terms of NetJacks, FletsJacks, some of the others, they have a huge international organization as well. Are you just USA-based or are you also international? So we are just U.S.-based today. We have plans. Um, we will be moving into adjacent uh, geographies and perhaps other geographies in the future. But we just got this commercial show going about 12, 9 to 12 months ago. So we're just rolling out now. But, yeah, there's opportunities in other markets. You have to look at sort of the intersection of regulatory, uh, so the flight profile, uh, and so the economics to make sure that it makes sense. But there are plenty of places where this makes sense outside the U.S. Mm. But you, you definitely need satellite over the oceans. Don't get me wrong. There's no way to do this otherwise. I was thinking that it must it would be very difficult to do that, like in the EU, because it's really a uh, a yeah. small territory with dealing with the EU and then dealing with all the individual countries that are trying to get permission and and, and pass regulators. I, I can't imagine how difficult it would be. The EU is very tough. There is a there is a service there called the EAN, the European Aviation Network, which was a joint venture between I think Inmarsat and uh, Deutsche Telekom, where they used satellite or S-band satellite and uh, CDMA wireless from the ground sort of in a cooperative way in Europe. And it still works. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty good service. But 
the, the challenge of going through all those jurisdictions is very high, very difficult. I imagine. You mentioned the, the uh, applicability of, uh, uh, of a system to, say, a King Air. How, physically, how large is the box that would be on a, a King Air, perhaps? Say a 300 or something. Yeah, this it's pretty small. I, I don't have the dimensions in front of me. I should have those ready, but it's probably about, I'm holding my hands up. It's a, a large brick. Uh, basically, mm. we try to try to keep the weight down as much as possible, and the antennas are pretty reasonably sized as well. We actually are flying a bunch of King Airs right now, um, and mo- we have two different, I should say, we have two different configurations. One is a one antenna configuration for the smallest aircraft. We call that light. And then there's a two antenna configuration for larger aircraft. We call that uh, flagship. Interestingly, on some special mission King Air, uh, they want the flagship or two antenna configuration because they have so much video coming off the aircraft. They want to they want to increase the bandwidth coming off the aircraft, and so we can do that with a different kind of configuration. So we could fit we could fit this in a Honda jet. We can fit it anywhere. Mm-hmm. So with a two antenna system, is it? Two antennas going into the same receiver, or are you duplicating receivers and have to have dual receivers in order to increase the speed? So it's the single same radio in every case, and then the two antennas. One is a uh, high-performance blade, and that is receive only. And then the second one, it's a transmit and receive, and it has quad, four regional beams on it to look into the four directions we were talking about when you negotiated the towers. And so uh, receive is important. Obviously, there's always a bias towards receive to an aircraft, but receive is also important because it it maintains the session with the network while you're transmitting. And so you have to have a good receive link even if you're transmitting, otherwise you drop the signal. Hmm. Uh, Dave, you know, when I think about all the the skills needed to uh, put something like this together, hardware, software, regulatory, all these different things, this sounds like an enormous kind of a project to uh, to pull off. What kinds of people were involved? Where did you find the the talent, the you know, the expertise to pull all this together? Yeah, the company has a very interesting origin story because it is the marriage of aviation enthusiasts and wireless technology uh, sort of brilliant people mashed together. This is a very different kind of business. My, I spent 20 years in satellite communications, and so I looked at this from a totally different point of view before I came here. Um, yeah, so the original founders of the company uh, came out of uh, aviation and they were frustrated with the options they had. They were an aircraft management company uh, that were available in that time. You know, this was a few years ago and their customers were frustrated as well. They wanted to do the stuff that is now becoming impossible today, you know, 10 years ago. And so they looked around and they found uh, a pretty brilliant guy who just written a patent and they bought the patent and then they raised a little bit of money and they did a proof of concept as one does. And they hired uh, a guy who came out of the cellular industry and worked very closely with the FCC to uh, to make sure that this kind of approach made sense, which it did. Uh, And then came the build out route, right? Then you build the network out and you, you prove the technology and you're off to the races. So it was a combination of Aviation and wireless folks. We've got people who come from places like Nextel, people come from aircrafts, you know, management companies, the, the other in-flight communication service companies. There's a few satellite and other air-to-ground companies. We've got employees from those places too. It is a specialized mix. You don't find a lot of people with background in both wireless and aviation. Yeah, for sure. And so, I mean, what was the draw for for people who would become employees? Was it to get in on something new and exciting? Yeah. yeah, it's it's a cool technology. No one's ever done this before. Uh, it's also a market that is largely, even with all the 
hand-waving and excitement that goes on in, in the press all the time, there's a lot of the market that's just not connected and wants to be. And so there's a big opportunity. So the excitement of, of sort of moving this capability down market. Now, have you set up a customer service function, organization? Uh, how, how, was, how will the customers get support? Yeah, yeah. So we work through uh, channel partners. We sell our hardware through MROs in the business aviation space and also in, in many cases in commercial space. Um, and then the services are sold through valuated reseller partners. And our, our main one today is Honeywell. And so uh, they sell the network service. They have a 24-hour knock. They've got you know, all kinds of resources that, frankly, we wouldn't want to have to build ourselves. Yeah. Uh, we also have all the capability. You know, we have to be able to run our own network, of course. But we have a very close, sort of closely bonded relationship with our evaluated resellers. Uh, we also work with Avionica in the uh, air cargo space, uh, which is a very specialized part of the commercial airframe business. Hmm. Yeah, cargo. Uh, the other day, actually, you and I, when we were chatting a little bit, um, air cargo came up. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the, the applications for this that are kind of uh, peculiar to the air cargo market. Yeah, you remember we were talking about the kinds of traffic sometimes dictates the best kind of connectivity. And when you have the need for high bandwidth off the aircraft and very low latency, you know, we are a natural uh, selection. And in any kind of uh, shipping market, getting data off the vessel or the, or the aircraft is, or the ship for that matter, where the ideas came from, uh, really is uh, key for uh, status, location. In some cases, they're, they're, they're shipping high value or, or even sometimes dangerous things, and they want to make sure they have sensors on those things, and they can pull all that data together, transmit it off the aircraft to the operation center. In some cases, insurance companies want to know this information as well. Uh, I worked previously in similar use cases for trucks in South America using little tiny sensors to tell them the status and location of the trucks. It wasn't GPS. It was the, it was the actual payload they had sensors on the door. And very famously in the, in the shipping industry, they do this a lot where every sea container's got a sensor that tells the status and it all gets aggregated on the ship and then beamed up over satellite. Similar idea, right? For air, air cargo, but much harder to do. Um, the other stuff that any uh, commercial uh, aviation endeavor, including air cargo needs is the ability to get real time data off the aircraft, whether operational data or crew communications. And so that's a, another application set that works very well with our with our platform. So I'm curious, and I'm afraid this is going to sound like a stupid question, so I hope I phrase it correctly. But, you know, you're providing the technology that is radio frequencies transmitting up and down, back and forth from the air to the ground. Mm -hmm. And you're providing an internet connection. Where are, you, where are you getting your internet connection from? How do you actually connect to the internet on the ground? So we have our own, um, it's a virtualized packet core, sort of 5G-based backbone in the U.S. And we lease the fiber like everyone else does from the U.S. fiber um, conduits. I should tell you our technical center is in Sterling, Virginia, which is right next to Dulles Airport. And there are something like 500 data centers in that area. It's the data center capital of the earth. So it has incredibly good network connectivity in that part of the world. And that's another reason why we were set. I'm surrounded by data centers in our office. Uh, but that's the idea. So we, we use That's why I wear an aluminum hat. There you go. <laughs> well, the data centers, you know, they're, they're massive warehouses that have no windows. They're just filled with network computers and obviously tons of fiber that connect them into the internet. So we connect uh, from our network, which is private, to the public network at, a, at these points of demarcation. We have uh, several across the United States. 
And then we manage our data centers in regions so that the data is localized. So we have the East Coast, um, we have uh, Midwest, and we have West Coast for that. And then we have a network operations center that we use to, to take a look at all of that. But the fiber is uh, in the U.S., the network's all in the U.S. All of our manufacturers are U.S.-based, so it's all. And then, of course, we have the usual you know, security protocols in place for that. We, we have another thing. I'm sorry to interrupt. We have another thing we can do as well. We can create, or I should say extend, a corporate private network to the aircraft. So you can actually, through software and the way our network is designed, extend the bubble. So if you are working for a large corporation or somebody who has their own security and private network, rather than going out to the internet and then tunneling back into your private network, you can just, in effect, put your aircraft inside your, your company's private network. And your radio signals are encrypted so that no one can tap into them? They're not encrypted. That's actually the end user. They can encrypt it. We can support encrypted, but most people don't have encrypted communications. But we have security across, you know, physical and logical security across our entire network. Hmm. But, it, you know, encryption is interesting because, you know, uh, it's very sensitive to drops and, and to delay. And so the fact that we have such a low latency and high bandwidth off the aircraft makes it much better suited to cover encrypted networks. We haven't talked about this in quite a while, I don't think, but uh, there were some uh, conversations well, maybe a couple of years ago about uh, hacking into aircraft, uh, mm. you know, flight control systems. From I believe it was from the back seat back uh, from the monitor. IFE, yeah, yeah, that was quite a story. <laughs> and you know, we, we talked about you know, is there an air gap so that these systems don't you know fit have a physical connection and mm. and all. What can you tell us about uh, that? Is is that is that something we should be concerned about? I'm not an expert in onboard uh, sort of security, but they do divide networks into domains, and, and that usually means physically and logically separate from each other. You can't access one from the other. But uh, I'm definitely not an expert in that part. Okay. Earlier, you mentioned the the light and the flagship um, products. You also have something called SmartCart. Have, have we talked about what that's about? Yeah, yeah. So especially with all of the MROs, we have some 22 MRO partners in our channel that sell our hardware to fleet operators or individual aircraft owners. Um, and then they install it, of course. And the installation of, once you have your SDC in place, the installation of the uh, equipment is a, you know, it's a process, right? You have to get in there. Usually it's part of another maintenance uh, check in, so taking things out of the aircraft, you install it. And the old fashioned way, many people do it this way still, of testing if you did a good job installing your uh, communications equipment is to fly around and see if it worked, which is expensive and takes time. We can emulate that entire process with a ground based system that actually puts people live on the network as if they're flying around talking to our towers. And so it, it cuts out all the extra steps of flying and fixing if there's a problem. Hmm. It's a sort of a way of making things go faster and be more effective and more cost effective. All right. And I think we've we've touched on this a little bit, but uh, what do you think future directions look like in this segment? Uh, you know, where do you think we'll be five or 10 or 20 years down the road? So I think like every other part of life, connectivity, especially broader broadband connectivity is going to keep moving into smaller and smaller places uh, like cars, like general aviation and when we do have a commercial eVTOL kind of uh, air taxi world they're going to need to have redundant communications links uh, they're going to have to have line of sight and beyond line of sight which means some somebody's air to ground and somebody's satellite and so 
that's a great place for us to, to in the future. Look, obviously that's years away, but, uh, we're very interested in seeing how that goes. And then there's the whole world of commercial, uh, unmanned vehicles and all of the work being done right now with the FAA and NASA hmm. around how do you manage that air traffic? Uh, I don't know anybody's going to do that, but you're going to have it at different altitudes, different, uh, I mean, you'll have UAVs, eVTOL, you know, general aviation, business aviation, and so on. Um, and so we have a part to play in all of those uh, emerging markets, not only the current markets, which are very hot, uh, just within our current footprint in the United States. So I think in the future, you're going to see uh, more connectivity, not less. You're going to see innovations in satellite. Uh, you know, you're going to see innovations in air to ground. And you can see smaller and smaller packages uh, going on these aircraft so they can fit smaller and smaller aircraft. Hmm. This is such a really unique topic. Um, have, have we missed anything? Is there anything we should have asked you that we missed? Because there could be, uh, there's so many directions it can go. Yeah. Uh, this is a general point, I guess. Uh, there, in any technology exciting market, there's lots of uh, puffery that goes on. And so I don't envy people, airlines or business jet owners, trying to get to the bottom. And so I would just suggest that um, have a good advisor that can actually get to the the reality of how things work, not the sort of shiny uh, advertising of how it works, because there are some solutions out there, not just ours, that are quite good and work great today. And there are others that are more, let's say, um, um, aspirational and won't be there for many years. Yeah, we do see a lot of aspirational things in the yeah. uh, in the aviation industry for sure, which is which is fine. You know, that's that's great. We're mm. we're always thinking and planning and you know and hoping for for interesting things. So that's terrific. So, uh, Dave, where can people go to uh, learn more about Smart Sky? Probably the web page. Yeah, I would go to our website, which is smartskynetworks.com, and there's plenty of stuff there. There's some great testimonials if you want to see what some of our customers think about our service and there's plenty of technical information and use cases about how people are using our network very good thanks again dave all right yeah thanks so much thanks guys i enjoyed it i I really thought we were going to need a technical translator when i saw some of the uh, items in your bio but i'm glad we didn't thank you All right. We don't have any What's Up With The Geeks uh, items. Anybody have anything uh, of note? It was a quiet week up here in Portland, Maine. It's been kind of quiet everywhere. I actually have a little one. Um, you know, I uh, I don't participate that much anymore in tight social media like I used to, but uh, Robert Sumwalt, uh, the former NTSB chair, uh, who's now a uh, in charge of the... Uh, Boeing uh, Research Center, I think it is, at Embry-Riddle in uh, Daytona, uh, made a comment about uh, his uh, participation on CBS News, talking about the Boeing issue and all that. And and uh, I, I said something in general to uh, Robert about the fact that uh, it's really sad that Boeing has, has gotten itself into this corner uh, th- that it has over the past few decades uh, that uh, people don't seem to trust them the way that they used to. Uh, and I, I made mention of that goofy sticker I probably said something about here, the, you know, if, it's, if it ain't Boeing, we ain't going hmm. kind of thing. And all pilots used to have those things stuck on their flight bags 
for years, and it was always pretty cool. But it was a great endorsement of Boeing, and and now people have, you know, they've kind of lost some uh, some faith in the company, and uh, so I I said something about that, and and somebody else took me to task and said, well, you know, if it wasn't for you journalists writing about a bunch of BS that you don't know anything about, um, you know, Boeing wouldn't, there'd be nothing wrong with Boeing's reputation. And I, I, now I, I realize that, uh, you know, to some of our listeners, you know, we sound like absolute experts in a lot of things, but, um, I know for a fact that many journalists are just general assignment reporters that get some of these stories uh, that they have to write about because uh, journalism uh, newsrooms are are much uh, staff much lighter now than they used to be, and I don't believe for a minute that any journalist goes out of his way to not get the story right. Uh, but I, I think on the aviation side, I said I think we really do. We work very hard, and I kind of resented the uh, the fact that this person indicated that. Uh, you know, real journalists uh, don't write about things that they don't know about. And I said, well, that's true. We don't. Uh, we try not to, but we also know how to research and we know how to find experts that can uh, fill in the gaps for things that, that we don't know. And it got into a, a fairly, uh, fairly heated uh, discussion as only uh, things on social media can. And, um, so I just, I guess I just felt like I wanted to tell people that, uh, uh, you know, aviation journalists, again, we work very hard to get the story straight, just like a, a, a standard traditional print journalist would about uh, the collapse of a local bank uh, or something. Uh, you know, it's, uh, and, uh, but again, Boeing brought this on themselves. They really did. And, uh Going back, uh, you know, and Micah knows this story as you guys do. A couple of decades ago when uh, Boeing and uh, McDonnell Douglas merged and they uh, decided they weren't going to be an engineering firm anymore, they were going to be a money-making machine. And um, uh, it changed the way Boeing operated. And I think what we've been seeing over these past couple of uh, years is uh, this uh, penny-pinching strategy coming home to roost. And I, I hope to God that Boeing has gotten the, the message, but uh, at this point, I'm not sure that they have. I don't think we can know for certain. Yeah, I, I was having a uh, kind of email conversation with one of our listeners that got into this, into this topic. And, I mean, it's hard to know us being outsiders. This is exactly what's going on sure. in, in Boeing, and as, uh, particularly at, like, the board of directors level, but it, it seems it seems to us that uh, you know there needs to be some changes made, and that's a natural conclusion to draw because we've seen so many things come up in the last however many years that you know it leads one to that conclusion. And one comment I made in this email exchange was that you know it can be hard to uh, to change corporate culture, but there is one one aspect, one element to it that I think makes it easier than you might think, which is that most senior executives are really driven by compensation. Whatever the compensation plan is, and and they all have a 
you know, there's there's formulas. You know, it can be based on stock price. It can be based on market share or revenue. I mean, it can be based on a whole lot of different things. But there's there's some formula that determines executive compensation. And that if you want to change the culture of a company, in my opinion, the way to do that is change that formula. I and mean, that's something the board of directors does. So if you think that there's a company that needs to have a stronger, oh, let's just pick randomly, quality culture, then you include metrics for quality or related things as part of the executive compensation package. And that will automatically drive them to maximize their compensation, which will get you the goals you want to get to. And, uh, you know, if if that doesn't happen, then not much is going to change because it has to come from that level. The description I've heard on uh, on many occasions is that McDonnell Douglas was run by accountants and Boeing was run by was run by engineers. And when McDonnell Douglas took over Boeing, and that's really what happened, McDonnell Douglas bought Boeing but kept the Boeing name. Um, the accountants continued to run uh, the show, and um, and that that's where the issue may be. Now I can't. This these are things that I've heard overall many different times. Yeah. Yeah, it's a popular thing that you hear very frequently. Uh although you know I did I did read an article and I wish I'd made note of what it was uh, about a week ago or so where somebody just threw cold water all over that argument. And they were saying that you know that's that's not really what's what's driving this, but we don't know. But you do hear that a lot. You do hear that that one a lot. It was Bill Sweetman. Was that was it his that sounds about right. Yeah, it was Bill Sweetman talking about the fact that before the merger, Boeing had started to change its culture before the merger. So it, he he says it goes back to before. It wasn't just the McDonnell Douglas thing. It was the, it was, and um yeah, I, I'll have to find it the, the Twitter article that linked it. But yeah, it was Bill Sweetman. Thank you. Okay, thanks, thanks, Dave. All right, on to some listener mail. We heard uh, from a, a lot of listeners this past week. Uh, one was from uh, Dave, and uh, I think it was last episode, right, Micah, that he brought us the uh, the little clip from the New York Times that mentioned the Airplane Geeks podcast. And we asked if anyone's got the you know a copy of the Times can send us the picture of the whole piece so we can see the context of it. Well, Dave uh, had that and sent us uh, sent that to us, and uh, we'll probably put that in the show notes for this episode. Uh, so. Uh, Again, we're we're kind of thrilled that we got a mention in the New York Times. Now, as for Dave, he, so he's a new listener, but he's also a uh, he says he's a beginner pilot Cessna at this time. He said uh, he does have some recent ride time uh, with uh, an American Airlines pilot in his uh, private twin engine, and this was to a South Carolina grass field fly-in. And this looks like a really, really interesting fly-in. The uh, event this year is September 23rd through 29th. That's 2024. And it's the 17th annual Triple Tree Fly-In. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. This is a pretty big big fly-in. They have a 7,000-foot grass runway there. And I guess at the 2022 fly-in, anyway, there were over 800 airplanes um, throughout the week from 43 different states. Uh, the uh, Triple Tree Aerodome had over 17,000 aircraft movements 
in a record 804 movements on that Saturday. Uh, and uh, those those statistics, he says, made, uh, made the Triple Tree Aerodrome one of the busiest airports in South Carolina for that week. So uh, sounds kind of interesting. Um, maybe find a way to be around the Carolinas, South Carolina, in uh, in late September, and uh, we'll have a we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And then we heard from a lot of listeners. Uh, after our favorite aviation movies episode last week, uh, we uh, we heard uh, in in our Discord server. This is from uh, Obi Wan Kenobi eight nine nine nine, and uh, he he apologizes for not or she apologizes for not sending in their nomination for the best aviation movie. Um, she, he said, I uh, thought the four-time Academy Awards winner, The Right Stuff, featuring Ed Harris, Dennis Quaid, Sam Shepard, and Fred Ward. I thought it was. on the list. Wasn't it? He said, I love... Uh, it might have been. Mm-hmm. He, he said, I love the uh, portrayal of the younger pilots on their race to space. He sent along a Right Stuff trailer. Uh, we also had some people write in episode comments on our webpage. Uh, Tom did. He said, perennially behind. I didn't send a favorite movie. He said, one of my favorites was A Gathering of Eagles. That was from 1963. Another comment on our website. This one's from Joe. Uh, He said, behind on the podcast, so I missed the opportunity to contribute. But here's a personal top five uh, of omitted movies. And so uh, his top five are The Right Stuff. Uh, Porco Porco Rosso. Oh, great anime. Oh, is that what that is? He said a movie about a pig man fighting fascists. <laughs> set, yep. Set in Porco Rosso is really good anime. Wow, 1992. I'll have to check that out. There are so many movies. Well, of course, Micah, you've seen almost everything here, but uh, there's a lot of these I haven't seen. Number three in Joe's list is The Wind Rises from 2014. He said it's a great companion to Oppenheimer that movie Oppenheimer uh, and uh, fourth is the North Star from 1943 says my personal favorite of the Hollywood wartime propaganda movies released during World War II and then and this came up uh, this number five was the Dam Busters um, this is from 1955 other uh, other comments on our webpage JP sent in and said uh, Whiskey Romeo Zulu said it's a fictional retelling of events leading up to the LAPA 737 accident in 1999. Uh, He says it features an unusually realistic depiction of airline operations and life as a pilot in a sketchy low-cost carrier. Peter uh, also wrote in, uh, I remember as a youngster sitting on the edge of my seat watching Only Angels Have Wings. Uh, And some emails. We also got some emails on this. Michael wrote in, First time listening to your podcast. Welcome, Michael. He said, I liked The Aviator, but if you've never seen it, watch the parachuting scene in Fandango. And then our our friend uh, Bill Barry, he said he's been working on his DVD collection of aviation movies. I bet he's got a huge collection. Uh, he said, I thought I was just about done, but I can see that I have some more work to do. And he probably has the only DVD player. Uh, no, I, I'm kidding. I have one. <laughs> I I had to buy one like last year because I had some DVDs <laughs> and my laptops don't have DVD players anymore. No, none of them do anymore. 
I have an emergency VHS machine in case any of you guys need it. It's, it's stuck in a plastic bag under my bed. Yeah, I, I sold three of them but kept one. I just recently got rid of all my Betamax tapes. Um, but anyway, Bill, uh, Bill said, uh, strangely enough, I'd forgotten about the final countdown. He said, I was in training at Castle Air Force Base, California, when it came out. A bunch of us went out to see it on the last night it was showing in the nearby town of Merced. The film broke just as the Nimitz is returning to Hawaii at the end of the movie. So I didn't see the conclusion of the movie until about a decade later when I was on alert at Plattsburgh Air Force Base. You'd think I'd remember the movie for the decade of suspense. Well, okay, maybe not so much suspense. Now I want to go back and watch it for the aviation scenes that I'd clearly forgotten. So a lot of additions to uh, favorite movies. Um, I'm thinking, maybe not right away, but I'm thinking uh, we'll add them to the show notes for the last episode. So uh, for uh, 783, which you can find at airplanegeeks.com slash movies, uh, we have a list of all of the, uh, the, you know, the favorite aviation movies and some descriptions and so forth. So I think we might add a little section for, uh, you know, late arrivals and add these in too. So that remains sort of a comprehensive list of lots and lots of aviation movies. Max, I'm curious. We've gotten so many responses. We got so many participants in, in our question and then so many emails. Is this, could this be the episode we received the most response from listeners from? Um, it might be pretty close and it's only been a week or as we record this less than a week out. And, uh, as you know, some, some of our listeners have commented here, uh, a lot of people are, are not completely current with the, uh, with the latest episode. So, uh, even over the coming several weeks, more and more people will be discovering and listening to our movies, aviation movies episode. So I'm sure we'll hear a lot more. But we did get some other uh, some other emails. Quinn wrote in to us, and this is from New Zealand. Flashlight damages fourteen million dollar F thirty five fighter engine beyond repair at Luke Air Force Base. And uh, this article describes how a the flashlight was uh, apparently in this F thirty five. There's a report by the Air Force Aircraft Accident Investigation Board. Uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes that that showed that this thing, uh, this incident occurred on March 15th, 2023, and the jet was undergoing some maintenance work. the uh, The report states a three member maintenance team removed a panel and inserted a metering plug into an engine fuel line. They prepped the aircraft for an engine run to test the installed metering plug for fuel links. The engine run was completed with no visual indications that would indicate an abnormal engine run. And the damage was found after the engine was shut down following the engine test. So in this uh, investigation board, they said uh, an incomplete toolkit inventory and failure to comply with joint service technical data guidance prior to engine start resulted in the FOD. FOD, of course, foreign object damage. The board president found that uh, F-35 Autonomic Logistics Information System Checklist Complacency in a Disconnect Between the Department of the Air Force Instruction 21-101 Tool Inventory Guidance and Unofficial Local Procedures were contributing factors to the mishap. So, yeah, FOD is uh, 
is a serious thing in uh, in aviation. I think what they're referring to, the toolkit inventory and so forth, is that typically you have some kind of a, um, a tool board. Sometimes it's called a shadow board. It can be a tray or something like that where each tool used in some maintenance procedure some or manufacturing procedure has a place on the board so you can visually just look up and see yep i got all the you know all the tools everything's where it should be when you do that and you have a case like this you'd look up and you go oh wait a minute the flashlight's not up there because there's a big hole where the flashlight's supposed to be sounds like they weren't complying complying with that we talked about this last night in Isaac's chat, Isaac Alexander, who's a friend of the show, and uh, he was talking about how when he was uh, servicing aircraft on board the USS Enterprise, that they would uh, do a uh, a tool check, an actual count in when they picked up the box and a count out when they returned it, so that there was an inventory on each, each time the box was taken, so there was nothing ever missing. Uh, and it surprises me that I'm sure they must have something like that in place in the Air Force, and I think that's what they were referring to in terms of not following those procedures. Yeah. It's well established in, in the aerospace industry that, you know, this is how you prevent that kind of FOD. But uh, Quinn uh, wrote a follow-up. Uh, he said that as a co-op, I went through a bunch of FOD reports. He said the most common one I saw was cigarette lighters and fasteners, but he also saw a few maintenance logs. He said the Air Force is really good at checklists, but when people get complacent about them, bad things happen. And we we heard from our friend Patrick Wiggins. Uh, this is um, well, this is sort of a space story, but this is from Interesting Engineering. Japanese startup plans to vaporize space junk using ground lasers. So this comes from this Japanese startup, X-Fusion. And they plan to develop a ground-based laser system to help knock out space junk from the ground. Of course, you know, debris orbiting our planet is becoming an increasing problem. Uh, there's all this junk floating around up there and you have to you have to deal with it when you're trying to pass through it. And so uh, I think there are different ideas out there for how you can how we might be able to deal with it. But this is an interesting one. This is a ground-based laser that shoots up and just Destroy. Boy, if you have a ground-based laser that can do that, I don't know. You could you could use a ground-based laser to do a lot of unpleasant things. But can, can I ask a stupid, stupid question? Because something I've never understood is that since the fifty, uh, since the sixties and on, I mean, everybody is launching satellites all over the place. How do they keep them from running into each other? I mean, it sounds like an air traffic control problem, but we know vertically, uh, you know, they, they keep them at different altitudes. But when you're talking globally, is there somebody in charge of making certain that someone doesn't launch a, sa- a new satellite into the orbit of a, an existing one? Well, I think NASA tracks them. Actually, it's the role, it actually, it's the role of the Space Force now in NORAD. Oh, is it? Yeah. Me? Do you remember how many objects they track? It's some gigantic number. Um, it's several million because I, um, because there are objects in space that have caused collisions that have created smaller objects. Right. So it, it's not just – there have been satellite collisions, Rob, to answer your question. Yeah. And that debris 
is constantly having to be monitored to because it jeopardizes the ISS as well as other aircraft, other spacecraft up there. So, if you look, um, if you Google space debris, you'll probably see a global map which basically looks like there's a whole shield of stuff orbiting the Earth, which is a statement of fact, yeah. you know. So it, there have been quite a few proposals about removing space junk and getting rid of all of and and what do you do with satellites that are dead? Do you deorbit them or unfortunately now geosynchronous orbit or um, the the zone um, between the Earth and the Moon? Are getting crowded also because a lot of the a lot of the satellites now get deorbited to the Lagrange zones, the L the Lagrange zones, which is the space between the Moon and the Earth. So every time Starlink goes up, that's another forty satellites adding to the constellation that's up there. Yeah, and other other countries want to build constellations like that, and I think Bezos wants to. Is that right? Wants to build a constellation to compete with. SpaceX, it's a lot of stuff up there. There was this sort of campy South Korean movie a couple of years ago. I think it was called like Space Sweepers or something like that. It was about that. That, that became an actual profession to uh, sweep through debris fields in space and collect all this stuff. Kind of a silly uh, sci-fi movie. All right, that's it for this episode. We want to thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. I thought my voice had come back, but I I hear now <clears throat> that it's about ready to give out. So we'll draw this to a close. We want to thank our guest this episode. That was David Helfgott, CEO of Smart Sky Networks. And again, you can find them at smartskynetworks.com. We're at airplanegeeks.com, the direct link to the show notes for this episode is airplanegeeks.com slash 784. That's the episode number. And, of course, our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, Mr. Vanderhoof, where do we find you? Well, besides being on the New York Times recommended podcast, you can find <laughs> me at the American Helicopter Museum where um, I am starting to work on this year's project, which will be a... 55th anniversary of the Apollo program. And what's that got to do with helicopters? Well, there's a lot of helicopters involved with the initial space program. So we're going to do rockets and rotors as well as a huge exhibit on Charles Schultz and Snoopy and his effect on NASA. So started working on that. So if you're interested, just reach out to me at David at the American Helicopter Museum. And David, you saw that they've... uh I guess, reconnected with the Ingenuity helicopter on Mars after losing the signal. Yep. For for a helicopter, it was only supposed to fly once. The fact that it's, I, I last count, I think it's over 50 times it's flown. So it, clearly a very successful helicopter. Absolutely. All right. And Rob Mark, where do we find you? Jetwine.com and other places. Um I can't think of what they are right now, but uh, I think one of them will certainly be on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, isn't that where you said we are now? Uh, or did I misinterpret that? Because I'm Close. only a journalist. Yeah, and what a journalist, know, especially aviation <laughs> journalists, right? 
All right. And uh, Micah, how about you? Well, you can find me on the uh, social media site formerly known as uh, as Twitter, and I'm at Maine Fly there, M-A-I-N-E, like the state, F-L-Y, let's go fly. But you can also finally find me, more importantly, with Brian Coleman on the Journey is a Reward podcast, and we should have a new episode coming out any time now. Ah, good. Waiting for that. Also mention uh, Max Trescott uh, should be back next week. And uh, if you haven't listened to his podcast, then you want to make sure you go check out that at aviationnewstalk.com. All right. I'm Max Flight. You can find uh, where I hang out by looking at 30,000feet.com. All right. So please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Nighty night. Great to be here. And thanks for listening.